how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Revelation Part 1, The Revelation Riddle. Well, today we're going to study the book of Revelation, so I want to begin by reading some of it, especially because it says, blessed is the one who reads it, so I want a blessing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, Revelation is a strange book and it divides Christians into two groups, those you can't get into the book and those you can't get out of it. Do you know what I mean? The fearful and the fanatical. And human opinion has varied enormously about this book. Some think it's a wonderful book, some think it's a terrible book, and leave it strictly alone. Among the negative comments, I've made notes of a few, as many riddles as there are words, a farrago of baseless fantasy, a haphazard accumulation of weird symbols, and worst of all, it will either find you mad or leave you mad. Unfortunately, the Protestant reformers three or four hundred years ago had a very low opinion of Revelation and ever since it's had a, a little place in Protestant churches. Martin Luther was very rude about it. He said it's neither apostolic nor prophetic. He said everyone thinks of the book whatever his spirit finds there. There are many nobler books to be retained. My spirit cannot acquiesce in this book and he wished it wasn't in the Bible at all. John Calvin was very similar and he omitted it altogether from his New Testament commentary. And the third most famous, you may not have heard of him, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, he said, it is not a book of the Bible so we can resist its testimonies. And alas, from there the Protestant churches have tended 
to have a very low view of this book. Certainly it took a long time to get into our New Testament but thank God it's there. Later I'm going to try and get you to imagine what it would be like if your Bible ended with Jude and didn't end with Revelation. It would be terribly incomplete. Fortunately there are many people who have very positive opinions about this book who think it's a masterpiece, one of the greatest books in the Bible and that's my opinion too. In fact it's my favourite book because my favourite book in the Bible is the last one I've studied and so today this is my favourite book in the Bible but I believe it's a very, very important book for where we are in church history. It's a book that I want the whole church to be studying to prepare us for what lies ahead. Now we know the devil's opinion of this book, he hates it. There are two parts of our Bible which Satan wants to keep out of your reading if he can. The first three chapters and the last three chapters in the whole Bible, the first few pages and the last few pages. Why? Because the first few pages tell us how he got a hold of us, how he got into this world and took it over and is now the prince, the ruler and the god of this world. But the last few pages tell us how he's going to be kicked out of this world, his days are numbered. So he hates these two bits of the Bible and if he can persuade you that Genesis is myth and Revelation is mystery, he's happy. Over the last 20 years or so we have had many tapes of Revelation 20 ruined between leaving anchor in perfect condition and reaching the people they were sent to and it's usually seven minutes on that Revelation 20 tape that's been ruined and during those seven minutes I talk about Satan's doom. So he's not very happy with you being here today. What does God think of this book of Revelation? Well we know his opinion, he has a very high opinion of this book. It's the only one in the whole Bible that has a blessing at the beginning attached to those who read it and a curse at the end on those who tamper with it. The curse at the end says that if you ever take anything out of this book or add anything of your own into this book that you will suffer the plagues described herein and you will lose your salvation, your place in the city of God. Now these are serious things. There's a great blessing attached to those who read this book aloud and those who hear it read and take it to heart and then there's this curse at the end about not tampering with it. Now that's unusual, it's the only book in the Bible that has such a blessing and a curse attached to it. Now let's just see its place in the whole Bible. It is the final book, it's the end of the story. Now the Bible can be looked at from two points of view. It is a history book through and through, unlike most of the other sacred scriptures of other religions which are not history, our Bible is history but unlike any other history book you can get in the library, it starts earlier and it finishes later. It starts at the beginning of our universe and goes right through to the end of it. No other history book that you can read covers such a span. And without the book of Revelation we would not know how history is going to end. Your guess would be as good as mine as to how the world will end but we know, we are the only people who do know how this history of ours is going to end, how the world will end 
and it's because we have this last book. It completes the entire history of our universe. Another way of looking at the Bible is to see it as a romance. It's full of romance, very romantic book. It's the story of a father looking for a bride for his son. And if we didn't have the book of Revelation, we wouldn't have the account of the marriage. We'd finish with the engagement between the son and his bride. Paul, writing to one of his churches, says, I have betrothed you to Christ. And that is the present relationship of a Christian to Jesus. We are engaged to him. We are betrothed. We're not married. The marriage comes at the end. And like every good romance, the Bible finishes with, and they got married and lived happily ever after. There was a lovely misprint at the end of a romantic novel which said, and they got married and lived happily even after. But <laughs> the normal ending is, and they get married and live happily ever after. And that's how the Bible ends. It ends with the marriage. You see, if we didn't have revelation, it might end with a broken engagement. But it ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, ends with a wedding, and they go to live happily in the New Jerusalem forever and ever. So without this book, the Bible would be very much shortened and cut off and the story wouldn't end, whether it were history or romance. So we're glad we've got it. Now, I'm afraid many Christians are frightened by this book. They've tried to read it and they get well through the first few chapters to about chapter 5. And then with chapter 6 they find themselves out of their depth and they're wondering what it's all about and where it's all going. And a few pages further on they're giving up. It is, at first sight, a very complicated book, a very difficult book, an obscure book. But I believe that's because we've forgotten two important facts. Fact number one, this book was written for ordinary people. It wasn't written for theological professors. In fact, I got a lovely quote here. It is one of the misfortunes of our expertise-oriented culture that when anything seems difficult, it's sent off to the university to be figured out. But uh, that's what's happened to this. And here's another quote I found which puts it in a devastating way. We boldly affirm that the study of this book would present absolutely no possibility of error if the inconceivable, often ridiculous prejudice of theologians in all ages had not so trammeled it and made it bristle with difficulties that most readers shrink from it in alarm. Apart from these preconceptions, the revelation would be the most simple, most transparent book that prophet ever penned. That's quite a statement. It is basically a simple book written for simple people. For the members of seven churches in what is now Western Turkey, and they were very ordinary people, not highly educated, not very noble, just very ordinary people, many of them slaves. And this book was written for them and would make sense to them. I heard a lovely story from America. It could be a preacher's story. Do you know what I mean by that? Little boy asked his father once, Daddy, was that story true or was you just preaching? <laughs> well, there are these apocryphal stories which preachers love to retail 
and this may be one of them, but it's the story of a group of theological students in a, a seminary, I nearly said cemetery, a theological seminary in uh, America. And they were having lectures on the apocalyptic literature of the Bible, including Revelation. And they were left in total confusion by the professor. So they decided to have a game of basketball in the campus gymnasium. And while they were playing basketball, they noticed the janitor or caretaker sitting at the side of the gymnasium, a black man. He was waiting with the keys to lock up when they'd finished. And they noticed he was reading his Bible. So after they'd played the game, they went to him and said, good to see you reading the Bible. Oh, I love my Bible. What part of it are you reading? Revelation. You don't understand that, do you? Of course I do. Well, what's the message in it? Simple. Jesus wins, <laughs> which is an excellent summary of the whole book of Revelation. Now, there's a bit more to say than that. It's not quite as simple as that, and we're going to take all day to say a good deal more. But that's the essence of it. That simple man had got the real message. Jesus wins. I love that uh, verse that says the common people heard Jesus gladly. That's not just a tribute to Jesus, it's a tribute to common people. Because you can't fool common people. You can fool educated people very easily. Just dress it up in the right philosophical language. But common people can't be fooled. They just say the emperor has no clothes. And they just say it like it is. And this is written for common people. And therefore, we need to read it with common sense. That's one of the greatest helps in understanding the simple, straightforward message of Revelation. Use your common sense. Take a statement at its face value. Don't be thrown by the symbols. No one takes the whole book literally. No one takes the whole book metaphorically or symbolically. It is a mixture of the literal and the symbolical. How do we know when we're dealing with this? How do we know when we're dealing with that? Well, when you see a scarlet woman sitting on a dragon, your common sense says that's not literal, that's a picture. At other times, your common sense says that's literal. Use your common sense. Also, use the rules of common speech. And one of the rules in common speech is that the same word in the same context has the same meaning. Now, that sounds obvious, doesn't it? But I can tell you now, when we come to Revelation 20, there would never have been the whole discussion about whether you're amillennial, premillennial, or postmillennial if people had used that simple rule, the same word in the same context has the same meaning. So much can hang on simple rules of common speech. Well, it was written for ordinary people like ourselves. However, it was written for ordinary people a long time ago and a long way away. About 2,000 years ago and nearly 2,000 miles away. And therefore, we do have to try and get back into their minds and their hearts and read it through their eyes. So it does involve a little bit of exercise to see what would those seven congregations make of all this book and then we can start applying it to today. Now, that's the first important principle. It was written for ordinary people. The second principle that opens this book to us is that it was written for a practical purpose, 
a very practical purpose. I want to say very strongly that it was not written to satisfy your curiosity about the future. And if you treat the book like that, you are mistreating it. It was not given to make us uh, what are called illuminati in history, those who have secret knowledge, those who've been initiated into the secrets of the future. It was not given to us to make us superior in that way, nor was it given to us so that we can write it all down on a large chart or timetable and then work out what time it is on God's clock and how near we are to the end. There's an awful lot of that been done with Revelation and it has therefore had no practical effect whatever on the lives of those who studied it. Just to be in the know about the future may satisfy your curiosity, but that's not why it was written. It was written for a practical, not an intellectual purpose. It was written not just for your mind, but for your will and for your heart. And we'll come to that practical purpose in a moment. It's not an old Moore's almanac with a detailed forecast. True, the book is filled with predictions about the future. There are altogether 56 separate predictions about the future here in this book, some of them repeated more than once. Furthermore, that's the highest percentage of predictions in any book in the New Testament, not in the whole Bible. Daniel has a few more and Ezekiel has a few more, but in the New Testament there are more predictions about the future in this book than any other book in the New Testament. So it is about the future, but not to satisfy your curiosity. The Lord has only told us what we need to know about the future in order to be ready for it. Now that's the practical purpose. The reason he's told you what's coming is so that you can get ready and be prepared, to use the Boy Scouts motto. Be prepared, get ready now. In other words, all that the New Testament says about the future is to help us to live right in the present. And therefore many of our questions about the future are not answered in the Bible. All sorts of details, I'm sure some of you will want to ask me questions after today and with a lot of them I'll have to say, I don't know, we're not told. What we're not told, we don't need to know now. What we are told is what we do need to know if we're to live right now. That's why Jesus said, I've told you all these things that are going to happen so that you won't be deceived now, so that you can live right now. So that's the practical purpose. All the predictions about the future are given to influence the present and that is because we live by three virtues, faith, hope and love. Now abideth faith, hope and love, but the weakest of these is hope. That's my own translation. And in the modern church I find that hope is almost non-existent because hope is what we know is going to happen in the future. It's not really a good English word, uh, hope, because it's an uncertain word. I hope it's going to be fine tomorrow. I hope I pass my exam. There's an uncertainty. Whereas in the Greek word, elpis, which is translated hope, that means something of which you are absolutely sure is going to happen. And that's a very strong word. And that's why it says hope is like an anchor to your soul. What we know is going to happen 
holds us when the storm comes. And the very centre of that hope in the future is the fact Jesus is coming back to planet Earth. And the whole book of Revelation is built around that fact. It begins and ends with notice of his coming, his second coming, his return to planet Earth. And that holds you like an anchor when the storm hits you. Jesus is coming back. That's the very centre of our hope for the future. I have no hope in any politician. Yet every election is beginning to be messianic. Have you noticed? Every election is looking for a political messiah who can put everything right and get us out of our troubles. And each time somebody wins, we think we've found him. Six months later, we're beginning to get a little disappointed and a few years later, we're disillusioned. That's because there's only one messiah. There'll be many false ones who claim to be, but there's only one coming back to put it all right. And one day Jesus will be back among us and he'll put it right. And among other things, he's going to kick the devil out. And until that happens, we're going to have trouble the whole way because we can't get rid of the devil, but he can. Well, now I'm jumping ahead right to the end, aren't I? Well, now the particular practical purpose for which this book is written may be found in one verse right in the middle of the book in chapter 14 and it's verse 12. And to me, that one verse right in the middle of the book opens up the whole book. Let me read it. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. This calls for endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. This book of Revelation at the end of the Bible is written specifically for suffering saints. And this may be why we have such problems with it, because we're not suffering. But Christians in many, many parts of the world are suffering and dying for Jesus. And for them, the book of Revelation is as plain as day. You almost need to be a suffering saint to understand this book, and we're not. So we treat it as an intellectual or academic challenge instead of seeking to feed ourselves on it so that we can suffer and endure. And this is written by a man who is already suffering for his Lord. It's written by John on the island of Patmos, a little island eight miles long, about 60 miles as the crow flies from the city of Ephesus, and he's a political prisoner. He has to work in the quarry on that little island. And there he is. I've got a picture of it, I think, here. Let's, let's just look at the... Uh, right on the top of the highest hill of the island, there is now a monastery, the Monastery of St. John. There it is. It looks more like a castle than a monastery. But that's on the site of the prison near the quarry where they had to chip out granite from the quarry and they slept in cells here. And John is there. What crime has he committed? He says, I'm here for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He is a traitor to the Roman Empire. 
And so he's been banished to what was then the equivalent of Robin's Island or Alcatraz. And there he is in prison. He is suffering for Jesus. So the book was born out of a man suffering for Jesus. But he's writing to saints who are also going to suffer and he's preparing them for that. And that is why I believe this book is so important because Christians are going to be less and less popular. They are going to suffer more and more as we get nearer to the end of this age. And this book was written to prepare us before the suffering hits us so that we are ready for it and able to endure it when it happens. Now John was writing this book in that prison in Patmos on the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day, not a Lord's Day. And we tend to make the mistake of thinking that was Sunday and that he must have been missing going to one of the seven churches that he used to visit and preach in. But that's not quite the case. I must give you a bit of history now. Twenty-five years before Jesus was born, there was a Roman emperor called Julius Caesar, of whom I'm sure you've heard. He actually invaded these shores. And Julius Caesar was the first emperor to call himself divine. Not just human, but divine. He was followed by Augustus and Tiberius, and Augustus went one further, and he commanded worship. And he said, I want you to erect temples to me all over the empire. And so Augustan temples were raised and in them people worshipped Augustus as God. And particularly in Western Turkey, the cult of the Roman Empire took deep roots and many temples were built to the Roman emperors. But Revelation was written much later, around the year 96 AD, towards the end of the first century. And by that time, Christians had begun to suffer. They'd begun to suffer in Rome itself under Nero, and Nero did horrible things. If you ever go to Rome, stand with your back to the Colosseum and look at a green hill on the opposite side of the road. That was Emperor Nero's garden. That's where he held garden parties by night, and he tied Christians to posts and had them covered with pitch and set a light alive to illuminate his barbecues. That's where he used to order Christians to be sewn into the skin of wild animals and then wild dogs were let loose on them in an enclosure. That was how Nero amused himself. But that persecution didn't spread beyond Rome. About 30 years later, Domitian became the Roman emperor and he really started the suffering of Christians right through the empire. You see, he called himself two new titles. He said, you must call me Lord and God. Lord and God. That's exactly what Thomas had once said to a carpenter from Nazareth. My Lord and my God. Well, Domitian said something more. He said, once a year, everybody must worship me. They must stand in front of a bust of me and an altar with a fire on it and they must take a pinch of incense and burn it on the altar and raise their hand and say three words, Caesar is Lord. Once a year, he expected everybody in the empire to do this at the cost of their life if they refused. 
Now Christians were presented with a horrible alternative. Only three words, Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord was the earliest creed of the church and they would never give that title to anyone else. God had highly exalted Jesus and given him the name Lord, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and we should call him Lord. And so they were going to refuse, or at least they would now be given the most acid test of their loyalty to Jesus they'd ever had. Would they say those three words? After all, they're just three words. Now the day on which Domitian commanded that to be done throughout the empire, he gave a special name to the day, the Lordy Day. And that's the exact phrase in the Greek in Revelation 1. It is the Lordy Day and Lord is an adjective and not a noun. I was in the Spirit, says John, on the Lordy Day, not on a Lord's Day, but the Lordy Day. Sunday is always called the first day of the week in Scripture. But the Lordy Day, that's special. It was an annual day when the Empress said, you all say Caesar is Lord. And John in his prison could see that this was going to be the greatest test of the people in those seven churches that he had pastored and taught in. Would they give in? Would they go under? And so he wrote the book and it's called, This is a Call to the Saints to Endure. But not just to endure, that means to endure under something. He used another word which is actually the key word for the whole book and it goes all the way through. It is the word overcome. Endure is to be under something. To overcome it is to get on top of it. Jesus said, cheer up, in the world you'll have big trouble, but cheer up, I have overcome the world. I'm on top of it. When I asked a friend of mine, how are you? He said, I'm very well un over the circumstances, which is a neat Christian answer. And so this book is a call to be overcomers, not just endure under this pressure, but get on top of it, come out victorious, be, as we sang earlier, more than conquerors, to be on top of the situation and not under it. To that end, the book offers two kinds of incentive both positive and negative. The positive incentive is offered all the way through in terms of rewards for he who overcomes. Those who come out on top will get one reward after another. And here are just some of them, I'll list them. The right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. The right not to be hurt at all by the second death the right to have the hidden manor and the white stone with a secret new name on it, the authority over the nations to rule them, to be dressed in white, to be made a pillar in the temple of God, never to go out again, and the right to sit with Jesus on his throne. All these are positive rewards offered to believers who overcome when they're under pressure, who get on top of it and come out victorious. At one point, Jesus says in this book, he who overcomes as I overcome, as I overcame and sit on the throne of my Father, he who overcomes will sit on my throne with me. In other words, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't done himself first. The negative side is what a believer can lose if he doesn't overcome 
but goes under when the test comes. And this is the most serious note sounded all the way through that book. It comes in chapter 3 verse 5 where Jesus says this, He who overcomes, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Literally the verb is never scrape off his name. They used a penknife to scrape ink off parchment to erase a name. And Jesus said, he who overcomes, I will never erase his name from the book of life. What does that mean in simple common sense English for those who don't overcome? Quite simply it means their name can be rubbed out, scraped off the book of life. In fact, the book of life is only mentioned in five books of the whole Bible, but all but one of those talk about names being rubbed out of the book of life. Right at the end of Revelation, remembering that this is a book written for saints, not sinners, it's not written for unbelievers, it's written to seven churches, to believers, at the end of the book comes this extraordinary verse after describing the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It says this, he who overcomes will inherit all this, but the cowardly and the faithless and the immoral and the deceitful, their lot will be in the lake of fire which is the second death. Now that's not written to sinners, it's not written to unbelievers, it's written to believers. And it ties in with Paul's and Jesus' teaching elsewhere. Here's Paul's teaching. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. But if we disown him, he also will disown us. And that's a quote almost direct from Jesus himself who said, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Now this of course raises the question, once saved, always saved, a cliché which never appears in Scripture, though some believe it stands for what appears in Scripture. However, may I just recommend you to read my little book, Once Saved, Always Saved? Question mark, in which I point out that of all the warnings about hell that Jesus gave, all but two of them were given to born-again believers and those two were given to Pharisees. Jesus didn't talk about hell to sinners, he did talk about hell a lot to his own disciples who had already left all to follow him. And Revelation therefore is written for this very simple purpose to keep Christians' names in the book of life so that they do finish up in the heavenly city and the new heaven and the new earth. That's the very simple uh, reason for which it's written, a very practical reason. It holds before us, this book, two eternal destinies which are held in the front of the believers, of the saints, of the members of those seven churches in Asia. One destiny is to be resurrected and reign with Christ and share in the whole new universe. The other destiny is to lose our inheritance in the kingdom and finish up in everlasting torment. And I fear lest having preached to others I be cast away myself. I fear hell, that's why I can talk about it. I could never say, blow you Jack, I'm all right, you're a sinner going to hell and I'm a saint going to heaven. 
No, this book reminds us that when Jesus comes, he's not looking for those who profess faith, but for those who've kept faith, to whom he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's the faith we finish with, not the faith we start with, that ensures our place in heaven. And that's the practical purpose of the book, not just to unveil the future so that you know what's coming, but so that you can be ready for it. And just to give one little example, this book tells us that things are going to get much worse before they get better, that there's going to be big trouble at the end, great tribulation, but one of the comforting things in that book is this, that that great trouble, the big trouble, the worst of all, will only last three and a half years, 42 months or 1,260 days. The Lord couldn't have made it more clear. But the contrast with that is reigning with Christ on this earth for a thousand years. The whole book is saying, don't throw away that for this. When you're under pressure, when it gets really bad, when the going gets really tough, hold on to the future and all you've got to look forward to and don't risk losing that, but remain faithful to Jesus. This is a call for endurance on the part of the saints who keep God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. That's why we read the book. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.